tension bearing upon us. So let me start things off. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amelia McKenzie, and I'm Assistant Director General of the Collections Management Division. And it's my pleasant duty to open the proceedings on this very cold day today. So you're all very much better off here, I think. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambari people, past and present, for their stewardship of the land where we now live. This year, as if, you know, I hope I don't need to say it, but we are just delighted to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of this fantastic building. On the 15th of August, 1968, Prime Minister John Gorton opened the new National Library building designed by the architectural firm Bunning and Madden. In the design process, the chief architect, Walter Bunning, commissioned a range of artists to contribute art specifically to reflect the classical style of the building. Prime Minister Menzies said, I want columns, and he got columns. One of these artists was the Melbourne-born Leonard French, who created the wonderful stained glass windows in the library's foyer. Now, I think many, if not most of you, I have not met before, but I've worked in this building for more than 30 years, and the Leonard French windows never fail to light up my day or evening as I pass them by. The eastern light flooding through them in the morning is something to behold, as our coffee shop denizens will know only too well. And they glow like jewels in the nighttime if you, if you leave and turn around and look at them in the winter's dark. For me, the artistry of those windows is what makes the library a, a special place for its many citizens. Uniquely modern, but slightly mystical and timeless. It's a place we come back to. So this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome the curator, art historian, and Petheric reader here in the library, Alison French, who happens, if you haven't worked it out already, to be Leonard French's daughter. Alison is joined today by our treasures curator, Nat Williams, to discuss the sun, the stars, and more in our stunning Leonard French stained glass windows. Please join me in welcoming Alison French and Nat Williams. Thank you, Amelia. And can you hear me? Good. And we should check, can yep. you hear me? There we go. Fantastic. Yep. Great, good. Um, so today we're going to do a number of things. We're going to see a fabulous 1969 film, Leonard French's Stained Glass Screens, uh, which we'll do up front. Then we're going to do... Alice and I will do a bit of a Q&A around the windows and Alison's father Len's um, work more generally and some other commissions he's undertaken, or he undertook. Uh, and also listen to some music which relates very specifically to our windows downstairs. So uh, they're the main things. And then at the end, feel free to come up and say hello. We'll, uh, we'll have some questions from the audience. And then Alison has very nicely brought in a few pieces of... Uh, published material about Len's work and uh, uh, including a copy of Life magazine. Which Courtesy of Gail Newton, which is fabulous. She's preserved that very rare magazine. Yep. So um, the first thing I want to do today 
is to um, briefly set the scene for 1965, the year the Stained Glass Commission was um, awarded to Len French and the year that the family uh, travelled across America, Len having received a, a Harkness Fellowship. So what might he have seen in the media uh, and been thinking about in that year in Australia and, uh, and in America? Well, the first thing I thought, which is sort of interesting, is the, the Gemini 4 mission uh, in 1965 in June and Ed White becomes the first person to walk in space. Uh, we've got this photo, which is basically the surface of the planet Mars, which was taken on the 14th of July, 1965, from the NASA spacecraft Mariner 4. This all has a reason later, you'll see. Uh, we have the Sydney Opera House under construction, which is still eight years from completion. So we ran on time and on budget and got everything done. Unfortunately, the, the Opera House didn't. Um, we've got this rather shocking image uh, of the KKK burning a cross in Trenton, North Carolina. Uh, these are all from 1965. And we also have the Beatles at the height of their success playing a, a gig in Houston, Texas, um, arguably when they were really at the, at the top of their game. Um, and finally, a f an image which will be very familiar to you all is the fact that the Vietnam War is playing out in the background through this period and for a long time to come. And to a politically aware person like Len and a politically motivated person mm. who brings that into his art later particularly, uh, it was a constant and painful reminder uh, of uh, what's going on in the world. Um, so we're going to um, look at the movie and the purpose in showing you the film, other than it's a really interesting film, uh, is basically to answer a lot of the questions that you won't then have to ask us about how did they do it? Because it's quite a commission um, and it really sort of... It's a very engaging, visually engaging film. And at the end, we have the potential to screen it again if people want to see it. I, the first time I saw it, I played it immediately twice because it, it needed that for me. But so, it's very dense. It, yeah. It's just fascinating. You it's, just eight, wanna... it's only eight minutes. But yeah, it's short it's but incredibly absorbing. dense. Mm. So, um, Adam? Uh, and I should just say that this is, um, the film is Leonard French Stained Glass Windows uh, and it was produced um, by uh, Film Australia uh, or the Australian Commonwealth Film Board as it was at the time uh, and we've got it courtesy of the NFSA. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I was happy with this commission simply because I wasn't given a theme that I had to work to. This would have made it impossible because I would have been forced to illustrate something that I had no feeling for. My own suggestion of the planets uh, made it possible to do 16 windows in different ranges of colours so that a pair of windows were violet, were red, were green and orange, gold and so on. And after all, the purpose of these windows is to flood the place with uh, brilliant coloured light. Uh, once the sketches have been submitted to the architect and one has the go-ahead, uh, the glass is imported in small slabs of one foot by eight inches from Belgium and France, from firms that have made this uh, from the Middle Ages. We then, and when I say we, it's a team uh, that come together, 
we work, uh, we sort out the, firstly the colours, and these colours are all numbered, so that a DA5 is a citron yellow green, a HA25 is a deep red violet, and it's been necessary to learn a palette of 50 colours. Now when I call the number, the people bring the glass to me, I then cut this into a series of shapes and chisel the edges of these shapes so as to prismatise the glass to bring light through. We then uh, lay this out, this glass out on panels of about uh, three feet by four feet and finally uh, cast, these, cast these panels into being uh, 64 panels all told. because of the scale of it, was to have an area big enough uh, to handle the job. On the different glass projects that I've worked on, there's been nearly 20 tonne of glass cut. This requires a big space, and also full-scale drawings had to be made on the floor. This was a purely physical reason for being at Heathcote, but the other reason is that this is a delightful place with very nice people. It's a long, long way away from anything to do with art. One is left just carrying out a, a straightforward job, Understood. Probably my most important uh, experience as early in the piece as a painter was actually working as a sign painter because here I, th I think that I gathered a sense of scale uh, that has been very valuable afterwards. And then in teaching, which I didn't like terribly much because uh, I'm afraid I tried to make everybody paint exactly the same as me, and then from there into uh, the National Gallery as exhibitions officer. This was interesting because for the first time I was exposed continually uh, to great um, works of art from the past. I was able to handle these pieces as I displayed them and uh, I got a great affection for particularly oriental art. Any painting that I collected would almost be accidental, uh, but in the case of, of oriental uh, scrolls or pre-Columbian art, I would collect these simply because in a, in a way 
they give me something uh, to look at outside of my own work and begin to suggest um, ideas when I'm at home and not working, uh, I, I get a great deal from this sort of thing. I find that firstly that my forms in painting uh, fitted very happily into glass, but whereas in painting one is working in a sense in just flat colour, the moment you start with these windows you're working in uh, with a luminosity, with uh, light reflected and, and fractured sort of light, and uh, red is no longer red, blue is no longer blue, it takes on an entirely different dimension and you're working with light. I think one of the big problems with every, any artist that has to work with architects is that the artist is always brought in at the end of the job and not at the beginning. If he was in at the beginning of the job, the work he wishes to do would be more integrated into the architecture. And I'm afraid it always begins a little bit late. So really, what you're seeing there is a film with Len uh, French narrating. He's 40, 41 years of age. Uh, he's the leading, probably the leading artist, the most well-known artist in Australia at that time, certainly one of them. And um, what's also interesting is that the, the unit that sort of puts the film together is actually they all become quite eminent people in their own right. <laughs> so you've got Michael Thornhill, who was the director, who had an extensive career in the Australian film industry, made a lot of documentaries for the Australian uh, Commonwealth Film Unit, now Film Australia. Uh, Barry Cunningham did the music. Uh, I'm sure all of you are aware of Emeritus Professor Barry Cunningham, uh, who is an Australian composer and an academic, has composed many pieces of music and 30 recordings of, of those compositions and turned to orchestral writing uh, under kind of the tutelage of, of Peter Sculthorpe uh, in the, in the mid-60s and Peter Sculthorpe was a great a friend of the library and we have his collection here. And the cinematographer, interestingly, is Don McAlpine, whose name will probably be familiar to some of you, who was the great uh, collaborator with Bruce Beresford uh, on uh, the 
Barry McKenzie films, Don's Party, The Getting of Wisdom, Breaker Morant. He worked with Gillian Armstrong on My Brilliant Career. And he won an Academy Award more recently for uh, Moulin Rouge. So it was quite a star-studded cast. Yeah, um, yeah. So all of them, Len at the top of his game and these mm. three young, uh, pe- young yeah. filmmakers kind of coming through working for the Commonwealth Film Unit. Um, so we're here to remember Len French today and his beautiful work down in the foyer spaces and his remarkable life and work. Um, I'm just going to show you... Uh, Go to the next one? Yep. Okay. Um, These images, which I encountered the other day, they haven't been digitised, they're in our collection. They were uh, made by Bunning and Madden, the uh, architects for the building. Um, And... It shows the work in progress in about 1967, I guess, when the windows are being installed. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to see the image to the left. You notice when um, uh, Amelia said uh, um, that Menzies wanted columns. Have you ever, as you've been walking past, really looked closely at those columns and see they're actually crosses? Because you can see see how the marble's being faced to it, but you see the structure is not... It's not actually a square. It's not a circle. It's not a square. It's not a cylinder. It's an actual cross. When we go back to look at the imagery later, just hold that in your mind. Yeah. And this, so yeah. There's another uh, a view of the works being in, uh, and I, I, I love the effect of the camera obscura. You know, which is which is fantastic. It's not something that happens now so much um, because we've got more more things in the way. Um, and there's another library as storehouse with uh, works being installed around it. And there, more of the finished job uh, of that corner of book plate, which... Yeah, with a total open, open view where you can get that sense of them working, talking to each other across a space. Um, it's interesting to observe that uh, Walter Bunning, in his design for the building, had decided that those two spaces, book plate now and, book, and the bookshop, were to be exhibition areas. And the, the windows were created to bring in this beautiful ambient light, which could be challenging in some respects for yeah. an exhibition area. Yeah. And uh, we'll come to it later, but you might have noticed there was actually a screen originally in that space which was taken out. Um, but I think Len's brief was to, to create a contemplative space, something a bit church-like, um, yeah, in a, a sense, because a, of the association. A spiritual space, a space that... Um created uh, before you moved in to a working, you know, a working yep. research, mental, um, you know, getting really confronting, you had had this whole sense of inspiration. I think that, you know, that's the way that functions that, at the point of entry. Um, so having just watched this rather um, quite memorable film... We might just start with a personal remembrance, and I'll ask Alison, um, uh, what can you recall of the window commission as a youngster? Well, in 1968, I'm actually 18. Um, in 65, you know, I'm 15. And you mentioned the family travelling across America. Well, that's actually Mark and Dad's middle middle family um, experiencing, oh, the you know, the real trauma uh, of... Life. I know Dad sent a letter back of um, talking about encountering a Negro woman 
screaming. Now, how is it described? There's a woman, her head is turned back, and the screams just issue out of her mouth. And I, you know, there's no account of how and why she's happening, and that it appears as flames that emanate. Uh, so um, my memory of actually physically making the windows, I, because what, what is happening is he gets the uh, commission from for the NGV, you know, the big collection in like 62. So over this period, 62 to 68, you've got the construction of these two big major mm. uh, commissions happening physically at the same time and happening because Les Hawkins, who's this fantastic guy who worked with Dad at the NGV, was uh, assistant curator in the Asian area but was like a t uh, technical officer but brilliant. Uh, anyway, Les is there making and uh, controlling the fort. So the point when, I mean, I remember being up there visiting at very early days, and in that, in that film, do you remember you saw the section where you have the boxes, you have the glass sort of being prepared and structured within each box panel so that um, you see in particular the way, you know, if you're inside, the glass sits proud, doesn't it? It's um, when you're outside, it's actually level with the back the glass and the cement is level. So you saw that moment where they were preparing and peering that back. I remember uh, a stage prior to that, which would be a form of um, physical drawing, I think you would, what you would say. So imagine uh, a box, it's like a light box, so it comes to about the knees. It's got long fluorescent tubes. It then has got very thick plate glass over it. So when you switch on the fluorescent tubes, you know, the light's there, then the, um, the whole studio is blacked out and uh, architectural paper is lined there and then those faceted shapes are being sat down and positioned and then he's pouring sand around the shapes to create a flexible dark boundary and holding so he could be move or swap the, you know, make a refinement move something over or change it or... And then once that's set in place, then the tracing goes round that uh, piece of glass and that glass gets given the number, its number. I mean, the actual uh, blank glass has got a number. Yeah. Yeah. Then that little very specific triangle or facet, that's got a number and that number's written on that architectural paper. So you're seeing... Um, something that's got an extraordinarily visionary quality actually coming into reality physically via these very um, creative, technical ideas and ways that he's initiating. And certainly Mark could tell you more about um, uh, that aspect of the stage of the, you know, the putting the, um, uh, the, the resin and all of that. So it's a, it is a really interesting creating... Mm. It's not just an idea that you then call technicians in. You work collaboratively with those technicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Len says in the film that, you know, he, he, he's not from... He, he, he is interested in art as a youngster and then kind of learns uh, how to be a sign painter uh, after, 
quite persistently turning up at the place and saying, you know, I want a job, I want a job, and they take him on as an apprentice. Yeah, yeah, and when, you, and yeah, when you mean, a, uh, you know, a sign painter, we're talking sign like writer. sign writer, you know, we're talking in Melbourne in buildings up on cranes, um, you know, painting uh, signs way up high, 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 you know, really um, quite physically, um, yeah, but what, do you, what do you think that actually gave him in terms of his practice? Oh, I think it gave a sense of um, uh, space, scale, the way uh, imagery reads and communicates from a distance. Um, it also gave a sense of confidence in, um, you know, directing and coping with challenges of that kind. Yep, yep. Mm? Um, here you can see all the... Something that you can never do in reality. You can see all the, slide, the, the screens as they were referred to at once. Um, in 1965, when Walter Bunning had the, the chief architect, he could pick any artist he wanted to, to work with, and he picked others like... Um, uh, to, to, yeah, Tom Bass. Tom Bass to do the lintel yeah. sculpture, mm. etc. Uh, and the Matigo mm. to do mm. the, the tapestries. Um, so what do you think it was that... Bunning saw in your father, was it the precursor example he was aware of the NGV? Well, that would have to be a factor because he was, you know, they would have known he was working on that big, that big commission. Um, I th and I think it was, uh, it connects with what I said before, having, having had a reputation for a addressing big imagery. And way, the first uh, major exhibition that had impact with, uh, uh, with everyone was the, the Campion paintings. And that was a, a series, it was a narrative which told a story but was in these um, very symbolic emblematic forms and it was of a Jesuit martyr. And so it was taking on um, a whole human, a human mm. statement. So you've got a building which is very geometric, which is very um, abstract in form, and by taking on Dad, you didn't get just an abstractionist, you didn't get someone who was, uh, you got a humanist, somebody who was taking on um, big issues, issues about the creation, the creation of the world, uh, suffering, all of those sort of bigger, bigger pictures, and that really, is the complexity of the content that's actually in the library. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The library is the, is the richness of all human experience, you know? So you're bringing those forms into, yeah. He, he says somewhere, I read somewhere in an article, um, I'm a solid tradesman. Yeah, yeah, and you there's know, that too. That kind yeah. of attitude towards his work that he would just work Yeah, that, that's work the other side. They would know they yeah. would get the job done, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, and there, now, yeah, so that's so, the side of him that would get the job done. And that side there, Rudy Coman, is his, um, his dealer, which later, if you ever want to, his Christopher Heathcote's book, it's got some incredibly um, funny, illuminating accounts of the relationship between the two men. Um, uh, in fact, my voice isn't so good, so Nat, you read this, you read this little thing between the two of them. All of those slides, by the way, they come from the Missingham Collection, Hal Missingham, uh, Director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales at the time, and Rudy Coman's collection, which is all here at the NLA. 
um, I was really, it was lovely to see that Nat had found them all. Yeah. yeah. So where's that, that bit, little bit there yeah, that yeah. describes them both? They were to make an odd couple, the blue-collar 32-year-old ochre artist and the sophisticated 52-year-old emigre dealer. Their body language, when together, spoke volumes. They projected an almost physical sense of self-belief, the swagger of a cocky boxer and his cashed-up promoter revelling in a winning streak. It was an association based on understanding, respect, loving friendship and sporadic rivalry <laughs> where they were continually getting into point-scoring contests. Yeah. They also both liked wine and they both owned wineries at one point. So I think there probably a lot of bottles of wine drunk with, in negotiating shows and sales and commissions and various yep, things. Yep, yep. But Coman was the leading dealer at the time based in Sydney uh, and he mm. was, they had that remarkably sort of Yeah, and he... he he contacted Alan McCulloch, the critic at the time, and, um, you know, I, I want to make um, Melbourne artists, I want to get their name in Sydney. You give me the list, give me the list, give me the list. And the top of the list was Len French, who was then working as the uh, ex very first exhibitions curator at the NGV. Eric Westbrook had taken this initiative and said, yep. you know, we don't want dead art, we want living art. So Dad was doing all of that. So he then became what Rudy would call his spotter, you know. He would find the best artists that would go up in Sydney. So that's that's that kind of art industry side of him that's sort of separate from the maker. Yeah. Oh, hang on. I'll just go back yeah. to this again for a second. Um, so here also you can see the major, you know, all the kind of themes playing out in the windows. So you've mm -hmm. got uh, the great turtle, uh, crosses, comets, planets, and we can go into that a bit more in detail perhaps later, but um, uh, it, it, it seems that the top register is, um, is the Mars sort of theme, if you like, if you're looking at it from an astronomical point of view, and we're going to talk about Holst's planets in a minute, and the second register along the bottom. So the top, top register is uh, book plate, and the bottom register is uh, the shop. Yeah, so I, basically... You're starting, you're ordering your coffee, right? You're going to be looking almost exactly at that tall, slim window just on its own. You're going to move to the second pair. Then you're going to see that pair. And then you'll have finished in book plate with that final window there. Yeah. And then same thing in the shop. Yep. On the left-hand side the shop. behind yep. the counter, you work your way through. Work your way round so and end up to there. Clearly working on this as a kind of schema that, that uh, we don't have the the drawings for it, uh, I think, at this point, but we were talking about that the other day. It'd be great mm. to see how the drawings relate to the, fi the finished work. But you get that idea of the cross, the planet, the comet, um, if we can see the comet, the comet sort of... Um, um, on the middle top coming through. Oh, yeah. Well, hang on, what have I done? Uh, Where's the, that here, little it, tail there, there yeah, coming see through. The, the idea of the comet flowing through, and there's yeah. another one in it as well. Um, so, do you want to say anything more about the coloration and the kind of breakdown of the screens? Well, I think it's really interesting um, when you go down there, you're at one side, you've got, uh, and this is where the Holst, maybe we should talk about it more when okay. we, after oh, we've yeah. listened to the music, yeah, yeah. Okay. because that is also part of, uh, I think, the inspiration for that. 
One of the things I can't not say today, because I thought it was fantastic, was in a new cut, new newspaper article I read with, where he's talking about not being a professional glass artist, and you saw him chipping away with that hammer, and you can imagine things could go wrong from time to time, and he said, I should have been made the patron saint of Band-Aids. <laughs> <coughs> because he was obviously getting into scrapes, as were the team that he referred to as well. Um, let me go on here. That. This gives you an idea um, of, you know, the fact that he was the name on everybody's lips in the art world at that time in the late 60s, in 67, 68 particularly. And so we've got three slides here which we'll just quickly show you. But here you've got him twice on the cover of the bulletin, once in actual mm -hmm. life form saying art on a large scale. The other is the windows here. Uh, Canberra's complex about culture. I don't know quite what that means, but you know. Both fascinating articles to read, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, there's a wrong articles inside both those that relate to that. Yeah. <coughs> then we have the NGV Commission, which is opened in '68. What's interesting is that the Library and the National Gallery of Victoria opened within a week of one another. So can you imagine? We opened on August the 15th. The NGV opened about a week or so later, I think. So. Len's trying to put these two things to bed, mm. you know, parallel mm. as they're both a, a, approaching a destination. It must have been very stressful for him. Mm. Um, but here you see the extraordinary sort of scope of this. And there's Roy Grounds, the architect on the right-hand side, who always referred to him, even though he was a 40-year-old man, as Laddie. Yes, yes. Yes, Laddie. Yes. Um, and here is the inside of the Women's Weekly where it's talking about the National Library. What's it say there? It says, library attracts Canberra tourists. So it doesn't make a great feature of the windows. They sort of get a little bit of a view here and you can see them obliquely in that view. But you can see that the library being a new building and a national cultural institution mm. before the gallery and museum and other institutions mm. was creating quite a, you know, a wave in, in the mm. media and in the public's awareness. Mm. Um, so we're going to talk briefly that and say that your father said that Gustav Holst the planets was a major influence on this commission. Mm. Um, clearly it fitted nicely with the overall idea of the sky being referenced in the commission, which Bunning had said, earth, sky and water. We will listen to some of Holst's the planets now in a moment, um, but first a little on the composer. Um, Holst was born in Cheltenham in England in 1874, died in London in 1934, major composer of many choral parts, songs, uh, song cycles, operas and orchestral pieces. And he's probably best known for his orchestral uh, suite composed during 1914 to 1916, uh, i.e. during World War I, which is the planets. Uh, in the mid-1890s, though, Holst first became interested in Hindu philosophy and in Sanskrit literature. Uh, his immediate impulse was to set some hymns from the Rig Veda, the most important of the Hindu scriptures, to music. It's interesting to know that both Holst and Len French had an interest in Hindu philosophy, uh, which accounts for some of the images you see here. The ancient turtle, for example. Yep. Huh? He hasn't come, the turtle. Here he is. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's, the turtle. Yes, yes, yes I'm getting yep. carried away with the turtle. Yep. Uh, the ancient turtle, uh, the painting we've seen here, and, and, and a, a lithographic version from the National Gallery's collection. Uh, where you see him sort of breaking down this form from a turtle into a kind of um, 
emblematic uh, you know, mm. motif and, and it sort of takes on a very abstract form but still has that naturalism sort of referenced in it. Um, the Hindu symbolism of the turtle believed to be holding up the sky is important here because we're talking about a sky-based sort of suite of windows downstairs. Yeah. Um, Alison, what do you think was the, the significance of the form to your father? Well, I, I think it's, um, it's a very generic... Uh, it creates and encapsulates, uh, it enables the artist to encapsulate all sorts of uh, generative forces. You see how the fish uh, appear in the, um, you know, the turtles, as the turtles' legs, you know, come out under the shell. You've got the fish at that point. You've got the birds that appear. So it's seen as... Um, something that holds the world together, that contains... And I think that, that he had a fascination with all, you know, all religions. So it's a sense of, um, yeah, that, that, you know, when people thought, oh, he's doing the Jesuit, my, my, oh, he's a Roman Catholic, blah, or, you know, that he, in fact, um, he, he, he was interested in all of those questions, such as um, right. how, did the, how did the world, you know, begin? Now, those, both those forms... Um, that, that print has its origins, uh, it's a work on paper, it's editioned extensively, it has its origins in a little small actual painting where he creates um, a, like a relief with concrete so that the, uh, you know, cement the surface is, and then the, the enamel paint goes over that. That work is a drawing where the paper mm -hmm. just runs. So you've got this whole textural mm. quality. So these ideas that he's have are not just abstract, they're realised in these different media in this material form. There's, there's that interest in medievalism and medieval art and heraldic imagery that you mm. see in his, in his work, mm. more so in his paintings, I suppose, than yeah. in here. Yeah. But certainly the idea of stained glass going back to the medieval mm. era and the fact mm. that he's re-treating re that into yeah. the uh, 1960s. Yeah, but yeah. see, when, when you're talking about, you know, Holst and that, I think we should, well, we should remember that Holst wrote that. Um, I mean, that's that's being written during World War One. Mm. You know, at the point where you're showing the Vietnam War in the sixties. Holst writing that in um, yeah, at that point in time, Dad is getting exposed to that classical music in forty eight and forty nine. In for, uh, in nineteen fifty, he's in London. Mm -hmm. You know, just immediately post. You, you know, he's experiencing post World War World, World War Two. Um, there's a sense, um, and when he's travelling through America, he's, he's aware of this whole sense of how civilization uh, can hold together or fall apart. And anybody who's seen the uh, Journey series in the University House that is, um, mm. uh, is about the um, imploding of a civilization, his last great painting was Chaos. Well, this imagery is the holding together against chaos. Mm. Do you know this mm. this great turtle image, whether it comes from a Hindu, whether it comes, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. But we should look, we should listen well, to the Holst, shouldn't we? we? We'll listen to the Holst, two excerpts from Holst planets, Mars, the bringer of war, briefly, and then Venus, the bringer of peace, while we cycle through the two related suites of um, images. Thanks, Ed.
So there you have it. Um, the Mars, the bringer of war, and Venus, the bringer of peace. So whilst there are these two, you could argue, two broad thematic structures to the windows, um, Alison, I think, has some thoughts about uh, other things that would have resonated with Lynn. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, it's interesting. When you go back down there, uh, it's hard to do at the moment because of, you know, all the, the furniture, the things uh, that interrupt you. But you can see the sense in which, in the big picture, the macro, you have the feeling of Mars in all of those red high-key colours. You have the sense of Venus in the cooler, cooler colours. But if you look at... Um, Holt's uh, specific planets, the, you know, it's an orchestral suite of, um, you know, you've got seven movements in there and that final movement that concludes is, um, uh, is, is Neptune, the bringer, you know, the mystic experience and that's almost paired with the two, Uranus, the magician, and they're both sort of agents, two, two type forms of creativity and I've always seen, whether it's, a, you know, a personal sense, you know, that very blue, the, you know, with the vaporous wave, that is the kind of mystic one, the two mm. that are in pair on those side walls mm. in, in, the, in the bookshop, are those particular um, figures. And I often wonder whether the one that is, uh, you know, is facing the, um, uh, you know, behind the, the desk is um, Saturn, the, uh, the, the bringer of old age. It has this real uh, beautiful spiritual kind of quality and sense of strength and um, reserve and poise and mm. uh, culmination. But when you actually, um, and when you move to the other side, you're thinking uh, Jupiter, the, uh, the bringer of jo jollity, you can see where that might be. You can see uh, the coming together potentially of um, the, uh, Venus, um, Venus and Mars, you can, you can actually see that actual culmination, um, uh, tiny slim vertical window mm. in the book shop, which almost has a Venus type figure um, and a, a Mars type figure. Um, in, in terms of Holst, it's um, uh, Mars as war and Venus as, you know, as peace, but you know, that starting imagery is almost like two lovers. So there's the kind of detail of aspects of Holst that can be seen throughout the window in smaller components, and then there's that bigger picture of the mm. separation of the, of the forces. But it is essentially, like music, it's a movement. You know, it's movement, it's agency, it's forces, it's creative energy, yeah. I'm looking at the clock because we're yeah, going to start running well, yes. out of time. We would yeah. like to take some questions. Yeah. Um, but one thing that Alison said to me a while ago when we were vaguely talking about doing this, she said, oh, you know, Len was very interested in kaleidoscopes. Oh, yes, I was talking about kaleidoscopes, yes. I mean, kaleidoscopes are not, if you ever, you know, work with them, they're not only just simply that way in which uh, light is changed and patterns are created and created through light and colour through multiple sources. But I, I, always, think of, I always think of them as the... You know, there's two ways, there's two senses of order in the world. There's the filing cabinet order, system of order, right? And there's the kaleidoscope system of order. And I think that these great uh, commissions of Dad bring those two strengths of him. It's the filing, filing cabinet thing that gets and creates and invents 
this whole system, this methodology. I mean, people didn't make art like this before he made it. He made, he created these systems, these ways. Mm. And the kaleidoscope is the whole visionary aspect. Very nice. Um, I'm just going to quickly run through some images now which give you a sense of some of the other things that Len French has done. Here we have uh, Wolfgang Sievers' documentation, which we hold in the library here, of the NGV when it opened, the great ceiling, which is 60 metres by 15 metres. It's huge, 10,000 you know, pieces of glass in it. Um, and you get a sense of that, you know, with that mustard carpet, very 1968, isn't it? Mm. Um, then we have a more contemporary view looking up at one, mm. yet another of Len's uh, mandalas, really, and, and the fact that it's such a kind of... Uh, place where people want to go and be and lie on their backs on the couches and things and look at these um, wonderful windows and have that experience. And it's one of the very few places in the world you can do something like that. Some more images which also show Roger Kemp, uh, who was a kind of influential on Ren, uh, on Len to an extent. And incidentally, his, his daughter worked on the on the drawings for the Great Hall. She you know, was an architect and oh, actually right. did technical work. Yep. Right. So yeah. they're his um, tapestries distilled from his One of his work. daughters. Um, because he had a lot. <laughs> and then uh, we have the, uh, the windows from Monash University, which is a different commission in the sense that big, round, huge window, which he thought was very successful, as I think I said earlier. But um, there were some issues which we can't go into probably for time, but Phil, you can ask a question if you like. But the difference being that he'd worked out a way to do polymer uh, bonding of the glass. So you don't have what we have, which I think is rather nice, is the kind of dynamic of the you, dark and light. Yeah, that whole issue of how do you hold glass yeah. into place and yeah. you've got three solutions and we don't have time to go into yeah. it, but really the, N, the NLA solution, right, yeah. the NGV solution, yeah. which is alum ply, yeah. you know, if you're up there high, you're working with CSIRO yeah. uh, and, um, you know, fantastic structural engineer like, uh, you know, Norman Musson, you know, you've got to make certain it doesn't fall so yep. you can't use the system, you know. So you've got sheet of aluminium, sheet of plywood, sheet of aluminium, that's alum ply all on an angle. So there's three different kind mm. of technical ways of making it work. Just a great pity that Dad envisaged that to be at the, like, uh, you know, university house, that would be the focused image at the end of the, you know, you'd be all sitting there, you'd be looking at that. Yeah. But they decided it would be too interfering and they put it at the back <laughs> and then they put that wall there. Yeah. So it isn't this as if you can be inside looking at it from a big distance. Hence anyway. Len's comment about architects being brought on to, uh, you know, artists yeah. being brought on to late in the piece. Mm. So they're the Alpha and Omega windows at Monash University. Here are two lovely uh, slide uh, stained glass panels at La Trobe, which he did. Two of the four, four seasons. Four, uh, four seasons, that's right. Um, uh, there we have some imagery which we saw from the film. I put this in just to remind people again about the fact that of the display gallery. You can see the gallery upstairs here uh, in the book plate side. And the and exhibition, yeah, was in behind that. And this is this beautiful screen which um, um, Arthur, Arthur uh, James Robinson, who was so significant um, uh, at the time in you know, having the consultant, unfortunately big conflict between him and Dad and Dad goes over his back to Sir Grenfell Price and writes and the, the chairman of the board he wants the screen removed because he wants the, the windows to be seen, you know, for you to be there and see across 
It doesn't want you to go behind the screen, hold one image in place, then go behind the so, other screen, etc. So it's a whole conflict that has to be resolved. So this, this, this beautiful blackwood, very beautifully detailed mm. and fabricated blackwood screen was ripped out and it's presumably in somebody's conversation pit in Canberra. So if you ever spy such a thing, we'd, li we'd like to know about it. And we'd Costa, like to know. who's it, here yeah. today... Is, we do have a researcher very, who's, who's... ...very who's keen to know more about that, it. That, yeah. um, there you go, there's another view of it and how it was used as an exhibition space from the film. And this is just to say, if you haven't ever been to University House and the seven days panels which were in Bruce Hall but were removed and are now with the uh, huge uh, regeneration mural. They're all there together in University House, open every day pretty much, and it's worth going in to see them, particularly when the light's good. Uh, it's, it's rather fabulous. Oh, that must be something. You, you read the Journey series have been up in a way, uh, and, and they're back in there? Where? Um, um, the Seven Days yeah. are, are, are where the Journey series used to be. Uh, I th uh, well, I think so. Anyway, we can go and find go out. Go and have a look. Yeah, You'll we can find, find out. Because um, ANU has, the, you know, seven days of creation, culminating yeah. in the big vast ceiling. Used to be in Bruce Hall, Bruce Hall being pulled down and, yeah. you know, whatever. And, um, yeah, and the Journey series, yep. But um, this, this is... This is just to sort of show you basically how the windows have a contemporary currency. We've used them very successfully for kids' events where they've made their own stained glass windows, which is rather lovely. And um, over a number of years, we've run this program a few times, so I think Len would be very pleased, mm. having a number of children himself, to think that, mm. that, you know, that they still have this kind of ability to draw, and they really do capture kids' um, interest. And in closing today, I just want to say, if you've got time, go and have a look in the uh, Treasures Gallery. And we've opened the Hal Missingham, who we refer to, Director of Art Gallery New South Wales. When he retired, he was given this book called Fully Bound, which had 200 works of art in it from every prominent artist in Australia as a retirement farewell gift. And in it, uh, on one page, is Len French's work here, which he gave for, the, for this sort of rather nautically-themed image. And strangely enough, when I turned the page going through it, because it wasn't digitised when I first went through it, on the next page is Tom Bass, who did mm. the lintel. So I thought it's almost mm. like this zeitgeist. Here these two fellows were united in mm. their projects for the National Library and they're united in this wonderful volume that uh, was presented to Hal Missingham, the photographer and art museum director in 1971, which he then very promptly gave to the library and his studio and everything in it burnt down, so it would have been lost. So thank God for Hal's mm. vision to give us that. Mm. Um, Alison... Let's take some questions now, I think. We've got a little bit of time. And um, yeah. far away, there's uh, m microphones with my two colleagues here, if anyone wants them. It's a maze today. Thank you. What can you tell us about the origin of the concept of coloured glass set in concrete? to make big windows. Ooh. Well, that's something that... I'm, not, I'm actually not aware of that, that method or way of working that Dad did. Um, I think it would be a question one could ask um, someone like Jenny Zimmer, uh, you know, Clark Zimmer. There would be a number of glass... It is a really fascinating research topic, isn't it? But because it's so, it creates such a radically different um, uh, aesthetic to setting in lead light, doesn't it? Mm. 
Now, I, I mean, is anyone else in the room aware? I hate to say that the first, the first, you know, because that invariably is never the case. Uh, Somebody up there, do you know? Do you know the answer? Yeah, I believe it's used extensively in Europe, Daldevere. The it, chunks of glass set in concrete originally, originally, yeah. and then um, epoxy. Yeah, but so. and, and at what at what point do you think it originally um, just became a whole dominant? I can't tell you that, but um, working in stained glass in the 70s, I was certainly very aware of it. Yeah. Um, yeah coming so you, from the you think history it's a kind of mid-20th century thing yeah, or yeah. early 20th century? I think more mid. Uh, Grace might be able to expand on it. Grace? Grace. My understanding is that it, it comes from France, early 20th century, and I think um, if you look at architects like Le Corbusier, not necessarily yeah. using cement, so, yeah, it's but, but having chunks of glass and... And playing with colour, but I think if you look early 20th century, and as Kirsty said, that Daldevere is the correct um, term for the technique as well. And I believe that Len was influenced by Ferdinand Leger, yeah, is yeah. my understanding as well. So there were some oh. other people working in that way, but perhaps he modified the technique. Well, that, that's what what I'm seeing. It the, the aspect that I'm not so aware of. You know, like setting the chunk the chunk glass, yet, yeah, but the faceting of the glass within the mm. and then setting it in that that form? That's I think there had to be a degree of innovation in the way he was working because obviously this, this, while there's 16 uh, windows, there's actually 64 panels. So he has to create 64 of those panels and then have them set one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four around the building. So, I mean, mm. it had to work for his studio, mm. op, you know, the modus mm. operandi for him and, and, and he also went, the install Yeah, here. and he went to France and Belgium to buy that glass. Right? So he's mm. certainly aware of that, that sort of... Yeah, that basic tradition, but the way he did it, I'm not aware of anyone else. Laborious, but, you'd have to say. But that would be a really be. interesting topic to explore, the difference between those early early and mid-20th century artists and what yeah. he did. So do anyone... There was a question here somewhere? Yeah. Oh, OK. Anyone else? Uh, I had a question about the... Um, I guess, correlation between the composer's work and the windows and was wondering with the NGV commission if there was um, a music that was inspiring or um, running parallel to that project as well. I'm not aware of that. No. No. Perhaps. I mean, there's a coherence to this project which I think the NGV kind of perhaps doesn't quite have. And he, he as I said, he did regarded as a disaster. I'm not quite sure why he felt that it hadn't worked. He said something like, mind you, if I had to do it again, I probably couldn't have done it any better, but he did refer to it as a disaster in one of the newspaper articles that came out at the time, uh, which is an interesting sort of reflection. And maybe the fact that he was working to the theme of music gave him more of a coherent structure to the way it's... I, I, think, uh, I think it's more the sense of the um, rigidity that working in the alum ply created, yeah. you know, that that so that um, there's a far more organic, you know, that he, that he really liked the organic aspect of um, uh, yeah, the... Yeah. yeah, which you could do if you're working on a vertical surface, but if you're on that... If you're covering a horizontal surface and you've got to work within those triangles coming down to the... You have to have that rigid, rigid thing, yeah. Any, so... Anyone... Mm. David... Um, as a Canberran, thank you very much for introducing me to the origins of Len French's work, which is really wonderful. It seems to surround us in Canberra. 
I was interested in your brief comment about the sacred turtle and the symbolism, fighting off chaos and things like that. Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie also spoke about symbols to protect a fledging democracy and to make the capital sort of in tune with some sort of spiritual energy that rose up. And I just wondered, is your dad's work in any way influenced or did he speak about the, you know, the planners of Canberra? No, no, no. That's, you know, um, that's not to say that that might be, you know, but that's definitely not that I'm, I'm aware of. And I think a lot of um, his interest in those things also come from the aesthetic force that they give rather than necessarily exploring, you know, the intellectual ideas of it, but mm. and it, uh, in quite that way. Oh, it would be interesting. Yeah. It would be interesting to know. I, look, he was made an emeritus professor at ANU, and he was always really when he was, you know, he's sitting at the table with Frank Fenner and all of these major academics, Mary and Jones. yeah, and he was. Um, he would always talk about, you know, that was more significant to him with people who were achieving in that kind of area than be sitting with artists. Do, do, do you know what I mean? So he, yes, he, he's interested in. Um, you know, and way back in the in the fifties, um, when he's what's called the Swanson Family Hotel, it's where Vin Buckley, the poet, and a whole lot of Melbourne academics are getting together, and they're talking about ideas, and um, so all of that kind of intellectual exchange is happening in a sort of a social uh, social event. It's a, it's like living life as a university. Do you know what I mean? And uh, it's not studying in an academic way. So. Um, yeah, though that, that is, yeah, yeah. It shows you what, I suppose if you look at the snapshot of the works of art at ANU and what was happening here with the building and the fact that the NGA was a work in progress at that stage, you know, in the late 60s, how dynamic and exciting mm. it was, you know. You know People have always yeah. often disparaged Canberra, but in fact, you know, it was popping. You know, things were happening all the time and yeah. less so now with funding, but, you know... Uh, and we, the other, the other way of, get, you know, of getting into that is also the fact that he was always very, very intuitive and, and responsive to the specific sites for a commission, you know. So mm. it being on the edge of the lake, that you can tell from those very early photos, can't you, that there's no way you could not have a sense of the Griffin legacy of when and where things were in the 60s. When you, in, you know, in, right now, it's pretty hard, isn't it? You know, we've had all these incrustations all over, you know, that completely distract us from what... You can still see the structure and the vision. But, Look, uh, I mean, I think you've got what you're saying there is an inst you know is it it's instinctively I think what you're saying is correct, but it's not something that I can answer by saying, oh yeah, you yeah, Tommy read X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. I think probably you're thirsty for your afternoon tea and and, and a break and yeah. um, to look at the windows in the flesh. Um, so we'll hand over to Amelia at this point. Thank you, Thank Nat. You. As as our timekeeper, I must draw things to a close. I think Nat and Alison would clearly be happy, happily talk to each other and to you for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, now it's time to uh, wind up. And um, uh, as we close, I would like to thank our supporters for making this afternoon's event possible, particularly the Australian government for supporting 
uh, treasures curator role, which Nat so ably provides through Catalyst, the Australian Arts and Culture Fund. It's a good example of government money being spent on the arts. Yep. Um, but in particular, I would like to thank Nat and Alison for such a tremendously interesting time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We used to work together a long time ago, by the way. We both started, years ago. you know, National Gallery of Australia. We were both there at the beginning. Yeah, 1980. Nat's installing and I'm doing education exhibitions yeah. and I'm a hat-check girl at the opening. Did you... <laughs> yeah, you know? I wasn't allowed to go. Oh, you, nobody, nobody could get in there, you know, unless you were heavy-dude staff, but unless at, at the lower level you had to have a specific role. So I was hat-check girl. There you go. So our doorkeepers and ticket minders will, <laughs> yeah. will be listening closely. Um, <laughs> So, yes, look, um, authoritative, well-informed and um, very personal at the same time. I think it's been a wonderful opportunity to come here tonight and uh, this afternoon and, and to, to listen to you both talking. So would you join me in thanking Nat and Alison very much? And oh, I should lastly say mm. that um, there are too many events to tell you about coming up this mm. winter, um, but I recommend you grab a copy of our brochure and find your way through it. It's a real kaleidoscope of activity mm. in this filing cabinet of a building. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, you can everybody. buy that film Thank in the bookshop if you want to. That, yes, that, so little, that little uh, film. The film is available in the bookshop along with the beautiful scarf crafted by the library as a 50th anniversary celebratory gift. Uh, and other material around the, the, the uh, windows as well. So thank you for coming. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you, Alison.